Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey everyone, this is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. Today, I am here with a special guest, Brian Knight, the president of NASCIS, the National Association of State Credit Union Supervisors. That's a mouthful, but NASCIS is easier. Brian, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Mark. Thanks for having me on. It's good to see you again, I think. Yeah, good to see you. It's been an interesting year in federal charters, state charters, state regulators, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really looking forward to chatting about what's happened at NASCIS and credit unions in 2023 and what you see on the horizon for 2024. We're recording this December 28th, and this episode will be live early January. So yeah, let's, so 2023, what's your takeaway on 2023, Brian? Well, 2023 was a busy year for NASCIS, for the credit union system, obviously lots of big news affecting the credit union system, multiple big mergers of Kind of national organizations and associations. We're getting reconfigured NCUA, NCUA board. And there's a lot of work going on at the state level as well. As I look back on 2023 for NASCIS, obviously we did the things that we always do. We filed dozens of rule summaries and comment letters. We provided reviews of multiple state credit union acts for regulators, for us and our credit union and stakeholder members to take a look at where their act compares to other states, to NCUA, where it's going in the future. We launched new committees to really zero in on some growing issues. Uh, we launched a committee focused on the special designations, you know, the minority depository institutions, the low income designated, the CDFIs. We have a new committee that is looking at those issues related to those designations, also helping to raise, in some cases, state regulator awareness of the of those designations, but also helping NASCIS focus on those designations. So that committee's met a couple of times. We're very excited about that. We have a new roundtable focused on anti-financial crimes, you know, heavily in the BSA AML space, but we have begun transitioning our view of BSA and AML from a, I think what's been historically in the credit union space, a compliance-focused view of Bank Secrecy Act and anti-money laundering. And NASCIS has begun to look at that really through the lens of anti-financial crimes. I think in our view, those folks who specialize in that area, either at NCUA, at the state regulatory agencies, at the credit unions, at the leagues, they're not necessarily BSA examiners or BSA compliance officers, although that's the title they often hold, but they really are anti-financial crimes professionals. I mean, that whole area, I think, has grown beyond compliance. And so we've begun to, to pivot our view of that portfolio through the anti-financial crimes lens. And we've stood up a new roundtable of those professionals at credit unions around the country. They don't even have to be NASCIS members to, to gather on a regular basis and talk about all of those issues. Plus, I also think as we talk about 2024, that obviously there's a renewed focus on those issues, on the financing of terrorism, on sanctions program, whether it's OFAC or FinCEN. You look at the war in Ukraine, you look at what's going on in Gaza, and obviously from a foreign policy perspective, there is a renewed emphasis on sanctions and those issues. But we also see continued implementation of the 2020 anti-money laundering. 
So we'll talk about that again as we look ahead at 2024. So we've stood, we've stood that up. We're going to be launching a new legal roundtable where we're going to be pulling in the general counsels from agencies, some of our regulators. We actually have a bumper crop of the regulators themselves who happen to be attorneys, even if they're not the general counsels for their agencies. And of course, we've always worked very closely with the general counsels from many of our credit union members and league and other stakeholder members. So we're going to be pulling together a roundtable. We actually used to have one 10 or 15 years ago. And just with workload and capacity, it, it went by. There wasn't a priority for us, but we're relaunching it. So we've had some conversations with folks who'd like to talk with each other. We've been running a series of free webinars going back now three or four years for all of our members on kind of litigation in the financial services sector, the class action litigation, general litigation, the CFPB and the SCOTUS and those kinds of issues. And there's been such a great response for it that we're going to stand up a group. We'll meet probably quarterly to just focus and talk about those issues. Also in 2023, Mark, you remember this when you were executive director, obviously a lot of what we do is working with NCUA, you know, the national exam committees meeting quarterly. We have the, I call it new, but it dates back now to 2018 pre-pandemic world, the joint supervisory working group, just a series of state regulators who sit with NCUA senior staff and some RDs on a quarterly basis and talk about all of the issues related to the shared supervisory mission that NCUA and state regulators have for the federally insured state charters. We have monthly calls with all of our state regulators. Every other one of those calls, we invite NCUA to participate, and NCUA continues to find value in joining that call. So every other month, NCUA and all the state regulators are on the phone on a Thursday afternoon just talking about all of the supervisory concerns, issues, trends that they see out there. Uh, exciting news towards the back end of 2023 in November. Uh, the South Carolina Board of Financial Institutions achieved its first NASCAS accreditation. So congratulations to Commissioner of Banking, Kathy Bickham. I'm actually headed down to Columbia in early February to present them their big certificate and congratulate them on achieving a NASCAS accreditation. And then lots of training and education. We probably put well over 2,000 people through various NASCAS events in 2023, whether they were our directors' colleges, our executive uh, forums, our big C training, our cybersecurity training, our cannabis banking. And that doesn't even include all the training we do specifically for the states, whether it is a state-specific training for their agency or whether it is sending state regulators to FFIEC classes or providing them other scholarships so they can augment their state training budget. So busy, busy year in 2023. But uh, looking back, uh, pleased with NASPIS's performance, pleased with the state of the state system in 2023. I think a lot of challenges obviously lie ahead in 2024, but I think as we finish out the year and look at January and beginning the next year, I think we're in a, as good a shape as we can expect to be to face and meet the challenges that are, that are coming. Well, I get tired just, just listening to all those <laughs> achievements for the year. It's like, holy smokes. Did you add, did you double staff too? <laughs> no, we still do this with a staff of nine. Wow, that's fantastic. So a couple of the the fraud anti-financial crimes, when I hear that, in my mind, I also go a little bit beyond the the anti-money laundering and BSA side of things. And and just with like AI, there was a podcast I was listening to where they were giving an example of a, it was a New York Times reporter who had a friend 
who had an account at Bank of America and they tried to use, someone tried to use his voice to get his account. And she was smart enough to figure out that it wasn't him, but it was an AI version of him and shut the account down. And it blew up a business deal that he had because he was overseas and he had actually stopped in and said, hey, I'm going out of the country. I want you to know I'm going to be doing some things. And then unbeknownst to him, someone else tried to steal his identity. And then in talking with different clients and with that example and different things, and they're talking to me about all the different softwares or outside vendors they have to try and mitigate the fraud side of things. You're kind of looking at it specifically tied to the BSA and AML side on that committee, but I, this is, I don't want to say I'm scared where this is going, but when I hear what's actually happening out there, it's a, it's a challenging arena in, the, in, in fraud right now. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And while this roundtable itself to start up is looking through the financial crimes with respect to the sanctions program, you're absolutely right. I mean, part of our pivot to look at this through the anti-financial crimes lens is, I'll get to AI in a second, but even going to the base level, cybersecurity. You know, we began to recognize years ago that the nexus between your information security officer and your cybersecurity concerns and your traditional anti-money laundering concerns, that nexus was growing. And we began at our cybersecurity conference to be giving the information security examiners and officers a dose of the anti-money laundering curriculum. And at our anti-money laundering conference, we're giving them a dose of the cyber curriculum. So you're absolutely right. The anti-financial crimes is bigger. And when you then mix in the AI, it is really challenging, whether it's traditional cybersecurity, the ransomware and clicking on a link versus the AI. It's just a never ending challenge. It's interesting as we look at the capability of artificial intelligence and actually reminds me of an early debate in the cybersecurity realm going back a couple of years. And you probably remember this from executive director. We talk about either the multi-factor authentication, but there was a time in there where biometric authentication was, that's the greatest thing. You know, nobody's going to be able to compromise Mark's retina scan or Mark's fingerprint and everything else. But even back then, there were some experts who I remember were like, be careful. If your password is compromised, you can change your password. But if your fingerprint is compromised or your retinal scan is compromised or your voice is compromised, how do you change or your face? And so they said, be a little careful because there is no changing your biometrics. Once it's compromised, you can get a new password, you know, every hour on the hour. And, and I feel as though the story you told in that article I saw in the New York Times is that's where we are, right? I mean, it's the, it's yeah. the AI now compromising the one thing that we think we believe our eyes and we believe our ears. And now you're not sure. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's a wild, it's the wild, wild west when you throw that AI into the front side. So, and, we, um, and, and NASCAS has been doing a lot of talking about AI. We've had speakers of various aspects of AI, not just the cybersecurity. There's the, what I'll call the ethical compliance components of AI underwriting, just understanding what is AI today versus what we think it is. I know you're aware, look, there's an entire academic school that even says it's a misnomer because it's not actually intelligent, right? I mean, you can, you can ask a language model AI to write you an essay about the Flying Colors podcast, and it will write right. a fabulous essay talking about how wonderful this podcast is, which it is, but let's be clear. It has no idea what Flying Colors podcast is. It, it right. doesn't know what those words mean. It doesn't know who you are or what a podcast is. It just knows that when it looks through language learning, these are all the things that people say about it, complimentary. 
And so right. it's not actually intelligent. And so I think understanding that and appreciating that comes with, to your point, a, a healthy dose of caution. You know, it is still only regurgitating and computing what it is learning from society. So for good or bad, it will also incorporate those things in its algorithms. Said, well said, very well said. Yeah, it's going it, and, to, and, and we're just seeing the beginning of what that means and doesn't mean. Yeah, that's, I, I see, I see 2024, 2025 and every year beyond really kind of pushing the envelope relative, relative to that, but also creating opportunities, but, but also creating risks on the other side. So, yeah, and, and the, so the legal roundtable, more and more credit unions, the, the, there, there was the time when there was CEOs and there were the vice presidents of lending and the CFO, the, the, the CEO, the CFO, the VPs, and maybe they hired out to get um, general counsels. But it's far more common now, especially in the large credit unions, if they actually have a, a general counsel. And, and where the world is at, they, they might not be in every meeting that the CEO is in, but nearly all. And then there are, when I was at NCUA as executive director, there were a lot of meetings where it's, I need to have the general counsel here so I don't need to repeat it. And, and they look at lens and not that they're, they end, end up being like a co-CEO, but they, the stature of that position over the last 20, 15, 10, five years and now it, it is making it one, as critical a, a position as there is in credit unions. I think that's great that you've got that, you've got that committee back up and running, I'm sure. It's like the wisdom of crowds and NCUA seeking, seeking the advice of NASCIS, right? When you have a panel of CEOs, they're going to focus on a, one aspect and the attorneys look at life through a different lens. So they're going to point out some things, again, both opportunities and risks. Have, have you seen that already in, in that committee? Yeah. So we haven't stood the legal committee back up, but in our conversations and in the webinars we've done on some of the legal issues, you're, you're absolutely right. The credit union system exists within the broader fabric of the financial services sector. And increasingly, the financial services sector, when we look at these issues from AI to even now courts reconsidering Chevron and what discretion agencies have and these kinds of issues, there is a larger back drop of legal issues that are, if not shaping the financial services sector, certainly exerting quite a bit of influence on it. And I think increasingly from our regulatory agencies, from NCUA out to the system stakeholders themselves, understanding how those legal challenges are playing out, whether, you know, what rules from the CFPB actually take effect, as I noted, to Chevron and what that means for discretion to interpretations of what is UDAP to the various class action litigations and what constitutes notice into the realm of cybersecurity. What is negligence? What constitutes a breach? What constitutes a substantial incident under NCUA versus a material incident for the federal banking agencies? I mean, all of these issues are, are playing out. And certainly we saw during COVID an entire whole legal HR world come front and center that, again, is probably beyond for those who have spent their careers in financial services. They understand compliance. They understand the rules. They understand a balance sheet. And now all of a sudden, we're in a world of, can I require employees to be vaccinated? Can I even ask them if they're vaccinated? All of these things coming front and, front and center, I think, has just elevated the importance of the legal realm. Yeah, no, great point. The 
couple other things you mentioned is mergers of big organizations. So we've got NAFQ and CUNA going away and it's going to be America's credit unions. That's, I've had a couple of different podcasts on that with John McKechnie and Jeff Bacino, but, and then there was a PSCU is merging. The, the name escapes me of who they're merging with, but what was it? Co-op. Co-op. That's right. Thank you. And, and so any general thoughts relative to either one of those that you want to chat about? It'll be interesting to see the end result. I think there are efficiencies and benefits that the credit union system is going to recognize. All four of those entities involved in the mergers had top-notch boards of directors who looked at these issues and cons considered the, the benefits to be achieved by the system. And I think from NASCIS's perspective, look, these are two major mergers. And I think no matter what corner of the credit union space you happen to reside in, there are going to be ripples out from it. And so I think from NASCIS's perspective, we're just waiting to see as these things ripple out from this, that is just such a major movement of four kind of mass centers, the credit union space coming together and just seeing what the ripple outs are going to be. And I think there's always going to be unforeseen results, good, potentially good, potentially maybe not, not to just not anticipate. And so waiting to see what that is, but excited for the future of the credit union system. I, I think on the one hand, it's exciting to note the credit union system is, you know, still alive and vibrant and still will be willing to rethink how it's traditionally done things and willing to experiment and to make changes and to adopt to the future, which is what NASCIS has always stood for. So on the one hand, exciting to see it doesn't directly impact us, but again, it's going to affect everybody in the credit union space because those are just such four power centers. Yeah, it's going to be interesting at GAC and they reveal there, and I know they just announced a bunch of the positions that they filled and it looks like they've done well positioning that to start off here real soon in 2024. And so the change at the NCUA board. So now we've got Tan Tanya Otsuka, who I don't know if she's been sworn in. I hadn't, I've taken a little bit of time off here between Christmas and New Year's, but I'm sure if, if it hasn't happened, it'll happen any day now. And uh, any thoughts relative to that with now we'll have a, a Chair, Chairman Harper, the Democrat uh, chairman, uh, uh, Todd Harper has been in place, but he hasn't had a second Democratic vote. And I've had podcasts where I've talked about what I think that means. I think uh, climate change, I think consumer compliance, I, I think he's going to dust off uh, the proposed rule on succession planning, uh, which may or may not apply to state charters. I think uh, I have to go back and see uh, what, how that rule was proposed. But any thoughts? As soon as I said it, <laughs> I, I thought I wrote a blog post that it was just feds. And I wrote a blog post that said the top 10 reasons why they shouldn't make it a regulation. So I don't think it should become a reg. I think it might, though. So any thoughts on where you, how you see this impacting credit unions and or NCUA uh, and or state charters? I mean, of, of course, you're going to have the fundamental dynamics of the NCUA board changing whenever you have a party shift and for all intents and purposes, the power center of the board from two Republicans to now two Democrats. So it's going to change that clearly. I'd be remiss if I didn't start off by acknowledging board member Hood's service. He was, you know, fantastic to work with for NASCIS, for the state system, always very accessible. I thought his second time on the board in particular, I think was a, a success. And so thank him for his service and, and excited to see the new NCUA board. Certainly, Miss Atka is coming with experience and an understanding. You might have a fondness for the attorneys. 
you know, right. coming with a, with an in-depth understanding of the broader financial services sector, an in-depth understanding of the legal intricacies of financial services and financial service regulation. I think that's always a good thing. I don't know what it means. I think it's interesting that now all three NCAA board members are former uh, Hill staff. Maybe that means nothing other than all three NCAA board members are former Hill staff. It's a, it's a definite trend. Yeah, it's a definite, a definite trend. But I, do, I think this nominee, like all nominees, obviously has the experience to do it, but brings a unique set of skills from her position on the banking committee that I think portends a great value for the credit union, for the credit union system. I would still like to see a former state regulator on the NCUA board. I know you're very familiar with that rant from Nascus, but again, look, our state regulators in a lot of cases have a very wide, broad perspective in a lot of ways, kind of akin to what she's bringing from the banking committee. Because for most of our state regulators, they don't just do credit unions. They do credit unions. They do banks. They do securities. They do mortgage originators, non-depositories, money transmitters. They bring that entire universe of the broader financial services uh, sector, as well as an understanding of the innovation that takes place at the state level. So I, I would like to see that in the future on the NCUA board, but excited to see where the NCUA board is going. With respect to the initiatives that you checked, yes, I think we'll see work on those. In addition to the succession planning, which was federal credit unions only, I, I would not be surprised to see perhaps NCUA revisiting the share insurance reform, the, the, the statutory structure of the share insurance fund. Certainly there is interest, obviously NCUA interest in third-party supervisory authority. And, and hopefully this brings renewed efforts to get what I think is probably most critical for the credit union space. And that is the CLF reform to get re-implemented the COVID era expansions of the CLF. Yeah, I, I think that I would hope that would be among the top priorities. I know NCUA has been working on that on Capitol Hill. So not to say that they haven't been, but you know, perhaps with the, the connections and the renewed vigors that she is bringing with her recent tenure on the Hill, there'll be some more weight behind that because I think that's essential for the future of the credit union system, particularly the majority of the system that are modestly sized and the role that the corporates I know are prepared to play, but can't because of the kind of current limiting structure. Great points. Yeah. And as, you know, as far as the CLF and the third party, I've, I've always been supportive of the, the CLF side of it. I've gone, I want to say I've gone back and forth on the third party, but I was only one of the strategies that I was aware of when I was at NCUA is you need to ask for it because if something blows up, you need to say, you, I didn't have it. And you don't want them to be able to say, well, you didn't even ask us. You didn't tell us. So there's that side of it. And then there's the side of it. Okay. Once you get it, is it, what do you do with it? Is it like that? You got to be careful not if they get it, not to uh, be the, the dog chasing the ice cream truck. Okay. Right. Now I got the, I caught it. Now what am I going to do? And my concern always was if we got it when I was there or if they get it now is uh, how do you utilize resources? How do you expand staff? Do you expand staff? When do you go in? When don't you go in? Who do you go in with? And, and that's, I don't want, Pandora's box might not be the right word, but that's what pops into my head. And there's always this battle for resources. The examiners don't feel they have enough. The, re the regions oftentimes don't feel they have enough. Now they're putting more resources into consumer compliance. And I, I have a disagreement with 
uh, Chairman Harper on the fact that I don't think consumer compliance is safety and soundness. And I think they are. I think those two things are mostly binary. And so there's just there's not enough hours in the day, just like you had a busy 2023. If they get it, how are they going to handle it? And I'm sure they will handle it because they always rise to the occasion. So I'm and with this recent malware uh, situation where a lot of credit unions were knocked down, I've revisited my thoughts and I think I'd rather catch the ice cream truck than at this juncture. Yeah. And I understand all of those concerns. And I know, as you're aware, NASCIS is a little bit unique in the credit union space, but we are not opposed to NCUA having third-party authority. We've never been opposed to NCUA having third-party authority. Going back to, I think, 2005, when then-Chair Joanne Johnson actively sought it uh, before right. before Congress. You know, look, we've got 29 or so state agencies that have some form of third-party authority. They use it sparingly. They use it when needed. They don't generally conduct regular examinations. But when you need that authority as a regulator is you need that authority. And when something right. goes wrong and you can't get the answers that you need to protect the operations, the reputation of the overall system, the deposits of individual credit union members, it's an invaluable authority to have. And so while I understand there are concerns as to how NCUA would wield that authority, and I won't suggest that we don't have some similar concerns as to how it'd be wielded, particularly ensuring that we don't have redundant use of the authority in those states where it is already there. I think for a regulator, it is a valuable authority. If I were looking at a state credit union act on behalf of an agency and they were asking NASCIS for suggestions and I saw that they did not have that authority, it would be one of the things that I would suggest. And then the other big issue, I think, for the credit union system is, look, there's also a disadvantage to the overall credit union system for NCUA not having uh, that authority. And that is that NCUA doesn't have access to those reviews of third-party vendors done by their sister banking agencies. And what you know and what I know is that when a federal banking agency reviews a critical third-party vendor, it will send a report of that review to that vendor's bank clients. And so you could have a credit union and a bank using the same non-QSO vendor on a Thursday afternoon, and the CEO of the community bank is sitting at her desk, and she gets a report from the FDIC or the OCC, if it's a national bank, about the status of that vendor. The credit union CEO sitting at her desk across the street, nothing, it's Thursday. <laughs> and that's it. And right, I, and I think right. that that's, a, that's a blind side for some in the system. And quite frankly, we've seen that play out at the state level where we've had states who have gone in because of concerns that were raised during their examination of a state chartered credit union, could not get the answers they needed and went through the beyond the credit union to the vendor because they had direct authority to do that. Right. And they would notify NCUA if there were federal credit unions who used this vendor, they would notify some of the other states. But at the end of the day, that state exam in many cases could not be shared with the federal credit unions. NCUA was given a heads up as to what the state found. But the state would send that its exam report out to its state chartered credit unions. Are you aware, and Brian, vendor, this is what we found. You need to fix this um, or have it fixed or be on alert or find a new vendor. And the federals were generally clueless. And so I do think there is an information gap that is concerning for the credit union space. But again, that's not to discount those concerns that you, you rattled off. I'm aware of those, share some of them, but I just think that... The supervisory value of this authority, when wielded appropriately, to me, for NASCIS, outweighs those concerns. 
said, very well said. And I think, yeah, you're right. It's time. It's time for NCUA to have that authority back at sunset back with Y2K. And, and I think it'll be, they've been beating the drum for forever, but I think Chairman Harper and maybe having a board member that another board member tied to the Hill, maybe that's something that they can get done together. So I'm hopeful that they can. I think it's time. And yeah, so very well stated. All right. So 2024, Brian, what, what's happening Starting next week, what's on the agenda for NASCAS and state chartered credit unions? Yeah, a ton. You and I have already talked on some of the big issues that'll be coming, the NCUA board, those initiatives, looking at artificial intelligence, looking at anti-financial crimes, whether that's the money laundering space, the cyber space. Oh, and a big one kind of related to all of that, particularly when we look at cybersecurity, which then quickly takes you into the realm of privacy, open banking. What is open banking going to look like when it gets implemented in the United States? And I believe it is a when, an if. But open banking can mean a couple different things. It can mean the right to port your data at a very basic level to a right to have any API of your choosing be able to interact with your financial institution at your demand to manipulate your data and everything in between. And what does that mean? Where does the cybersecurity responsibility lie? Where does the implementation costs lie? Who decides what the standard of data data is? I know the CFPB has an initial uh, proposal out there, but we've, NASCIS has been looking at open banking as it first arose in the EU. Uh, we've talked to some countries, we're talking with the credit union system in Australia that has gone through it uh, to try to put our arms around what are the things we need to be thinking about as open banking comes to the U.S., you know, when it comes, I don't think it's something that's going to be implemented, obviously, by the regulators, state or federal. This is going to come, you know, from a different policy center, which is concerning because the impact is going to fall on our depository institutions where here are the states or the prudential regulators. But at a minimum, we need to be prepared for this debate, understand the nuances for this debate, prepare the system to be able to weigh in as it gets shaped. Because I am not convinced the final form of open banking as it will be implemented in the U.S. has been decided upon. And so I think there's an opportunity to, to try to get in there and try to get answers or at least a robust policy discussion around all of these intricate issues. So I see that as tied to the artificial intelligence and the AFC debate, because I think privacy, security, all of that is, is wrapped into that. So I think that'll be a big, big issue. Uh, another issue is NASCAS, as I, I noted that we've been reviewing some state acts uh, upon request of some of our members, is just understanding what will and should the credit union system of the future look like. You and I talked last year, and we, you and I both talked about how the broader financial services sector is undergoing transformational change, right? Old traditions of the roles of a depository institution versus a non-depository institution versus who can access the payment rails, who can hold people's money. All of these things are being challenged and, and debated and shifting around. And the credit union system is going to have to find its place in the reshaped financial services sector, which isn't just a U.S. financial services sector. It's a global financial services sector. And so we're going to have to find our place and, and think about what do we need to do to ensure that our role, but more importantly, our ability to remain relevant to credit union members from a regulatory agency perspective to ensure that we understand the trends and innovation that is needed versus the safety and soundness risk and make sure that we maintain robust supervision while not stifling the innovation needed 
for credit unions to remain relevant. And so I think all of that in 2024 will continue to percolate just underneath the surface, which is going to require, you know, a lot of kind of dedication to training, to thought leadership, to issue spotting on some of the things that we talked about. And of course, for our state agencies, this all takes place against the backdrop of day in and day out conducting examinations. One of the, one of the comments, uh, John Koloff on our staff who testified at the NCUA budget hearing noted is the just tremendous amount of work done by state regulatory agencies and state chartered credit union and the amount of money that state chartered credit unions pay to, to support that work. The state chartered credit unions reported paying over $94 million to the state agencies to be state chartered credit unions compared with $109 million that the federal credit unions pay to NCUA and the state charters are only 39% of the number of credit unions. But, you know, our state agencies conducted over 440,000 examination hours, um, generated over 1,500 reports, and that's 46 agencies covering 2,000 credit unions and 68 million members and over half the assets in the system. While all of that day in and day out work that you are well aware of that folks don't kind of see when they think about NCUA or they think about the state agency, they tend to think about the oh, regulatory burden level and not the day day out work that's being done to safeguard deposits and the members of the system. And by the way, safeguard credit unions from their sisters and brother credit unions who might not be as diligent as they are, right? Yeah, in, a, in, a cooperative, in a cooperative system. While conducting all of that, also staying abreast of all of the changes and trends is just you know going to be a busy year in 2024. I would be remiss if I didn't note we're also gearing up I talked about our busy 2023 schedule, and then we'll have the same full, robust schedule of events in 2024. We're bringing all the state regulators together, and I presume NCOA will join us as they do every year for a regulator-only meeting. That'll be in late March in Chicago. Our annual meeting of NASCAS, we call it the State Systems Summit, but our big annual meeting will take place uh, in October, October 20th through 23rd in Colorado Springs, Colorado, a little bit later in the year, but that's the perfect time to head up into the foothills of the Rockies at the Broadmoor. So we're very excited about that. Again, that'll bring state and federal credit unions, all the leagues, NCUA, the state regulators uh, together. And then on top of that, we'll continue our member webinars. We'll continue our directors' colleges, our trainings. We have a whole slate of FFIEC classes we're putting out to the state regulators to attend NASCIS's expense. So just continuing the work that we always do, Mark, to ensure that the state system and the overall credit union system is, is ready to meet the challenges of tomorrow. That's good. The, the dual chartering system is important. Uh, it allows for the incubator of ideas. Uh, NASCAS and state chartered credit unions are fortunate to have you at the helm of their trade association to to, uh, to help move that ball forward. And again, uh, back to the wisdom of crowds that NASCAS brings to light many issues uh, that help NCUA and help credit unions, help state charters, help federal charters. By the way, if someone wants to, I, I want to, if someone wants to join NASCAS, a, a state charter can join. You have that separate. We didn't get into that, but you have the state, you, you have two boards, right? You have the board of yeah. the state regulators and you have a board of credit unions. If someone uh, wants to help support your organization by joining, how do they go about do that? And what does that mean for them? Great. Thank you for that opportunity. And I was actually going to circle back to that because you mentioned a couple of times the wisdom of crowds, which is what NASCAS stands for. But with respect to joining NASCAS, look, any credit union system stakeholder is welcome to become a part of NASCIS. Uh, we have state chartered credit unions that are members, predominantly our membership of state chartered credit unions. I've got about half a dozen federal 
credit unions, some of the larger federal credit unions, and modestly sized federal credit unions are members of NASCAS. Leagues are members of NASCAS. The corporate credit unions are members of NASCAS, about 18 other system stakeholders. If you're a credit union system stakeholder, generally speaking, you are welcome to be a part of NASCAS. We do have two governing bodies. We have a regulator board of directors, but we have a credit union advisory council as well. That advisory council represents what we call our stakeholder side of our membership, the credit unions, the leagues, the other system stakeholders. But our board and our advisory council always meet together, talk about the issues together. And to your point, I think that's why NASCAS has been so successful in these nearly 60 years that we've been doing this since 1965 is it is the wisdom of crowds. It was a regulators only association until the late 1980s. You know, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the regulators invited the credit union system into the organization to your very point. They're like, look, for the past 30 years, give or take, we've been very successful in talking among ourselves about the issues that we see and debating what should be the supervisory response. We have a blind spot. We ourselves don't run credit unions or banks for that matter. And sometimes what sounds good to us doesn't work the way we thought it would when it's being implemented. So they did. For that kind of wisdom of the crowd, they opened NASCIS to the system stakeholders to be like, let's talk about these issues together. We can tell you our perspectives as regulators, not just of credit unions, but in many cases of the broader financial services sector. Here are the things we have seen gone wrong in the past with this versus the innovation and the operational expertise of the credit unions and the credit union supporters, the leagues who are serving the members every day as they come in and meet their needs. So it is that wisdom of crowds. Anybody interested in joining NASCIS can go to our website, uh, click on join the conversation. It'll show you the different categories. If you join uh, NASCIS, you become part of our conversation. You are welcome to serve on most of our committees. We do have part of our shop. We are still at our core, that Regulators Professional Association we were formed as in 1965. So there is a part of our work that is closed off from the system stakeholders. A lot of that work with NCUA behind the scenes on those things, obviously that's confidential. That doesn't get transferred over to our system side. But on our broader system side of our membership, whether it's our LNR committee, this legal committee I was talking about, the special designations committees, uh, working groups, issue spotting, the education, the training, the discussion of of policy. Probably one of the most popular committees in NASCIS is our Legislative and Regulatory Affairs Committee. It meets the first Wednesday of every month. It's got about 80 folks on there from agencies, from credit unions, from leagues, from others. And first Wednesday of every month in the afternoon, they get together and they begin hashing out these various issues, whether it is somebody asking a state-specific issue, hey, we don't, we're not allowed to do this in our state, or we don't allow this in our state, who has a different view versus discussions of AI and NCUA proposed rules or CFPB proposed rules or FinCEN or OFAC uh, issues. But it is that wisdom of crowds. Thanks for asking, but to, you know, go to the NASCIS website uh, and you can click on join the conversation and see how to join. Fantastic. And Brian, as we wrap up here, is there any question I should have asked you today that I did not that you want to highlight here? No, I think as, as always, I think you and I have spent a lot of time talking about these issues over the years. I think we've covered a, a lot of the big, big issues. I appreciate what you do, both with this podcast and with the consulting you do in the, in the credit union space. And I'll tell your listeners, sometimes I have NCUA questions. I need a different perspective. I think I called you up on just about a year ago. I called you up. I was like, okay, Mark, once again, let's go through this NCUA budget. <laughs> let's debate OTR. Explain it to me. For, what am I missing here from your perspective? So where, I appreciate where you. Are they hiding? Where are they hiding the bodies? 
<laughs> I appreciate you and, and what you do. Appreciate this conversation, this opportunity to talk to your listeners about NASCIS and what they do. Fantastic, Brian. As always, I enjoyed our chat. I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you. Happy holidays to you, uh, Mark. I hope you have a uh, happy and uh, successful 2024, and I'm sure I'll be uh, seeing you down the line somewhere. Likewise, sounds good. And listeners, I want to thank you for listening. I hope you listen again soon. This is Mark Trankles signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 